Hello, and thank you for tuning into The Sacred. My name's Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about how we communicate with people who are different from us, and how we might have more human and emotionally intelligent public conversations. This week, you'll hear a conversation I had with Professor Tom Shakespeare, who's a sociologist and ethicist in the School of Medicine at the University of East Anglia, and a professor of disability research. Tom was born with achondroplasia, so has restricted growth, and uses a wheelchair following a spinal cord injury. He's been involved in the disabled people's movement in the UK and sits on the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. I spoke to him about his Quakerism, the limits of identity politics, why he is in favour of assisted dying, and why his sacred value is listening to lived experience. I think this is the first of our podcasts which records a spiritual experience, so you will hear a few seconds of silence as Tom struggles to talk about his encounters with something beyond himself in those Quaker meetings. It was a real privilege to be in the room at a powerful and intimate moment like that. In the middle of the podcast, as usual, we will take a few minutes to catch up with a member of the Theos team. This time it's Nathan Mladen on Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think. I hope you enjoy listening. the question that I'm asking everyone and after 13 or perhaps 14 or even 15 episodes I still haven't come up with a very short way of describing what I mean but I'm going to ask you what you hold sacred I'm going to ask you to bracket out your kind of loved ones your personal relationships and think about is there a principle or a value that you seek to live your life by and that if someone asked you to give that up that would be very very difficult for you might even feel a bit sacrilegious I thought I had an answer to this. I knew the question was coming. Uh, But then I listened to last week's podcast and you had Tom Chivers on and he comes from a science background and he was saying that his his sacred was um, the pursuit of of truth. And that's what I was going to say. So I thought, well, and and I want to qualify that in the sense that I'm an academic, I research for a living and I try to understand the world and get as, I don't think we can get the exact truth, but get as close to it as possible. And so that is really, really important to me. I mean, it's the central thing for what I do. And I don't think anyone gets to bagsy the concept of truth. So you're allowed it as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, And if if you ask me to, you know, to, to, to go back on that or to say something at speed, yeah, that, that's I couldn't do that. Um, uh, but you need some refreshing. This is what I want to say, which is that in my work and uh, my political work as well, I think my sacred is hearing the voice of lived experience. So we have the empirical evidence and the normative reasoning, which are sacred and central to me. But what we often miss out is what people say about what matters to them, their experiences, their personal take on things. And we need to hear that more. Um, I am a qualitative social researcher. I go out and talk to people. I listen to people better than talk. I let them talk. And I try many times to bring those voices into the debate or into my work. So I would say I will, to the day I die, go out and listen to people and try and uh, make space for their voices. That's wonderful. Thank you. 
one of the things I've been reflecting on is this triumvirate of goodness, truth and beauty. And it's interesting how most people's sacred value is somewhere in truth or somewhere in goodness. And I haven't yet had anyone say um, something about beauty as a sacred value to them, but maybe I just haven't had enough artists and um, uh, people from uh, that world who've made that their life's work. Uh, come on yet. Yeah, I know it's something that you've thought and talked about a lot. Perhaps we'll come back to it. I mean, a Platonist would say that it's all, it's all one. Um, I'm not sure that you'd find somebody who is so sort of aesthetically focused that that would be the case. Um, I think we're also more utilitarian these days and we want something that we can not just relish and love, but something we can use to change the world. And beauty can be very dangerous. So building on that about the search for truth, but also uh, listening to people and listening to their stories and their lived experience. Uh, while I was researching this podcast, I came across uh, some work that you'd done and some um, thoughts you'd given about the kind of hyper-rationalisation of our public debates. It's something that we've touched on in this podcast that uh, I often feel when we're talking to people who are different from ourselves, we're adopting this almost pseudo-rationalist approach that we can cudgel each other with our evidence and we're all making our minds up purely on the basis of evidence. Despite being an academic, I get the impression you don't believe that? Well, I don't think empirically it's what people do. I think that stories are very, very persuasive. And that can be very dangerous. I mean, all sorts of stories are very negative. You know, the Daily Mail is full of stories, most of which I do not agree with one bit. So, but that's the way people are. Um, we don't weigh up evidence. We are, you know, the cognitive psychologists would talk about different ways in which we understand things and the centrality of emotions and a story that narrative grasps us and illustrates, rightly or wrongly, a conundrum and we remember it. And we have to engage with that. We have to realise that. I hope that I make my mind up with reasons and facts, but most people don't. And indeed, I probably don't some of the time. I might do when I'm being an academic, but I'm not sure I do in my private life. What should that mean for how we engage uh, with people who are different from ourselves? Well, for me, it's about broadening the number of stories that are told, um, not making those stories based on stereotypes, understanding the diversity of experiences. Um, so, you know, for every person who, um, I don't know, has foregone testing and not had a termination of pregnancy, there's another person for whom the testing and the termination actually were important to her and expressed who she was and she doesn't regret. So, you know, I think we have to have an understanding that, uh, you know, we're in a pluralist world. There are people of many faiths and none. Um, and what we can try and do is help people with those very difficult choices. I'm speaking as an ethicist here, obviously. Help people with those very, very difficult choices, but not tell them what to do, but maybe uh, offer information and arguments which will help them construct those choices for themselves within a world which supports their different choices. Do you not believe that there are kind of overarching ethical principles that in an ideal world people would follow? I think that... For example, I gave the, the issue of prenatal diagnosis. I think, you know, we can lay down parameters. Uh, we can, we can um, you know, it's, it's not that everything goes. I'm not a relativist at all. But I don't think, no, I don't think I can tell somebody what's, what's best for them. Um, clearly, there are parameters, you know, you should not kill, you should not steal, all the rest of it. Even those aren't universal in the sense that I'm not Kant. You know, I do believe there's sometimes that you have to lie. And clearly, there are some wars you have to fight. But we can minimise that and we can make those values dominant in most areas of our lives while remembering that no one value encapsulates the diversity of situations we might find ourselves in. 
Mm. Well, let's zoom back a bit so I can um, help our listeners get a sense of you and where you've come from and how you've come to some of these positions. So tell me, was there a religious, spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? Um, well, I had breakfast with my Anglican priest brother yesterday, uh, so that gives you a clue. My uh, parents were uh, you know, very devout Anglicans, and my father's passed away, but my mother obviously still is. And I went to an Anglican school, and um, so was you know fairly religious, you know, verging on very religious. And then come 18 or 17 or 18, I um, fell away from all of that. And um, I think at that stage I was a communist. Um and felt, you know, I didn't believe in God and um, I, you know, was politically active and all the rest of it. And yet I was also very interested in um, different faiths and Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and probably off and on through my um, 20s uh, and 30s would have read those things. So I was clearly, there was a hole, a religion-shaped hole in my life. Um, and then um, in 1997, a very dear friend of mine, Julia Darling, suggested that we go to Quakers. Her mother had been a warden of a Quaker meeting in Winchester, and Julia was a dear friend of mine, and she knew I was also interested in Quakers. We started going together, but not together, if you see what I mean. And that was 97, and so that must make it 20 years since I've been going to Quaker meeting. Not, I would like to say, not religiously, not every Sunday, but at least once a month. And so they, because Quakers have the space for um, changing beliefs and non-conventional beliefs, because Quakers um, let your life speak, the idea that you're not just about belief, but action. And also that, um, you know, I'm an Englishman, uh, at least on my father's side, and I certainly born up brought up in that culture and so for me to try and be a buddhist is is almost like bad faith because i don't have the japanese or the chinese or the indian um worldview so you know i'm sure you can be a good buddhist from britain but it was harder for me whereas quakerism is the sort of zen buddhism of england it's got a christian tradition which i was used to it uses that language but it's actually more spacious um than uh, your, your 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 conventional um, Christianity. I mean, you know, I my as I say, my so I, I encounter people of Christian faith. My partner's uh, born again Christian, and also people who are militant atheists. So I would say I was somewhere in the middle. Maybe more people than we think are somewhere in the middle. Uh, there's been uh, news stories recently about the Quakers and uh, the potential change in wording in the. Um, the uh, kind of guidebook, as it were, um, Quaker Faith and Practice. Forgive me, I was reaching for that title, which I knew and had temporarily forgotten. It's less a guidebook than a collection of wisdom that other Quakers have found useful yes. that we may or may not find useful. It's not a creed or, a sac- yes. or anything like that. D- anti-authoritarian tendencies. Uh, it has been communicated in some areas that Quakers are thinking of dropping the word God. As I read up more on that, I realised that was potentially a uh, mischaracterization of what was happening. But do you mind me asking that most, possibly most personal and non-British question? Where do you stand on the G word? Well, you know, Quakers would always answer by saying, it depends what you mean by God. Um, and I don't know what you mean by God. And that's quite interesting, isn't it? We don't ask people about their faith in that direct way. So I would say I was an agnostic. Um, I don't believe, uh, I'm not... I don't think I'm a theist. I don't even believe I'm a deist, to use that language, um, except 
you know, Spinoza talked about, you know, God was uh, identical to the universe. And I find that appealing. Um, when I was spinal cord injured 20 years ago, uh, no, it was 10 years ago, I can't even count. When I became spinal cord injured 10 years ago, I read Spinoza's ethics from my hospital bed um, and found much to enjoy of it. And so, yeah, I don't believe that there is a personal God who answers prayers and um, intervenes in the world. But I'm not about to say... You know, Wittgenstein says, "Thereof uh, uh, we cannot speak. Uh, Whereof we cannot speak, thereof we shall remain silent." You're not unusual about Quakers. Uh, amongst Quakers, I understand maybe fifteen or twenty might characterise themselves even as atheists beyond being agnostics. Yeah, yeah some would. Some would. Um, there's certainly a, a Quaker atheist community. I mean, what we do is worship, is we sit in silence, and I think that's really, really helpful generally. And um, and we wait and are minds become hopefully clearer and the day-to-day troubles and concerns fade away and then sometimes uh well often thoughts occur but sometimes quite an important thought occurs and um you dwell with that and you wait and see if it goes away and you check that it isn't just um you know something somebody said to you last week and then you know you feel you feel You feel burning and shaking and in intensity. And it's because you've tapped into something very important, very real and meaningful. And some Quakers would say that that was God speaking to you. And some Quakers would say that that was something deep inside your psyche or your brain, which you'd stumbled upon. And it seems to me, yeah, at various times in my Quaker life, I've thought that it was God speaking to me. And at other times I've thought that it was, you know, that my evolved capacity for discovering truth, truth for me, that might be useful to other people. Um and, you know, you can tell from the way I talk about it that it's very moving. It's not something you prepared earlier. It's not a sermon. There are people in Quaker meeting who come along and minister. This is called ministry. Minister at the same time every week for five minutes. And you think you're not meant to come with hearts and minds prepared. You're meant to come open for something very meaningful. Um, and so, you know, in my agnostic phase of my life, I would say that we're you know, Jung said, you can take away a man's gods, but only to give him others in return. And so I think that we have this capacity um, evolved for discovering what we believe and what might be truth. And Quakers do that in that way that I've described. Others do it in other ways, which are, I'm sure, equally valid. Um, and I think it's actually good. I think it's really helpful. I remember once, I that's called ministry, when you come across the truth and you feel that you have to share it. And I always cry um, and I always shake. And I, I remember one time after meeting, I had done what I just did, you know, been moved, ministered. And afterwards, an older Quaker said to me, over tea, we always have tea, Tom, I really like it when you minister. And I was, wow, I was very touched. And then she went on, because you've got such a loud voice. <laughs> And sometimes people's ministry is lost, but I always hear every word you say. So thank you. And it was humbling and funny.
Thank you for sharing that, Tom. And thank you for the vulnerability of talking about spiritual experience. Uh, the, in the conversation with Tom Chivers I had a few weeks ago, I made myself for the first time talk about a similar, similar experiences that I have that I would characterize as experiences of God or the Holy Spirit. Um, but it's hard to talk about those things in public. And I think it's interesting because um, I think you, I don't, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, a materialist essentially. Um, and it may be that that's God. Who knows? Maybe it is. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. I think it's useful. And that's the sense in which I say I'm agnostic. Um, but uh, my, as I said, my brother is a vicar and my great-grandfather was a quite prominent Baptist minister. And my great-great-grandfather was a Baptist minister. And, you know, there are lots, particularly on my father's side, lots of very religious people. So, you know, I could be materialist about it and say, well, you know, clearly we're the sort of people, for whatever genetic or neuroscientific reason, who get a bit blubby and a bit, you know, spiritual from time to time. Um, But you could say that something else, and that's your choice. I want to talk to you about public debate more generally, uh, but let's start on that uh, religion question, the way we talk to people who are who are label themselves or self-define um, as different from us, whether they're an agnostic and we're talking about atheists or um, religious believers. What do you think is the state of the public debate about that? Um, I think that um, Britain is becoming more and more ir- ir- irreligious in one sense. You know, fewer people go to church or even mosque or, or temple or gurdwara or whatever. I mean, we obviously have had a a, 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 an injection of belief from um, migrant and immigrant people over the last 50 years. But equally, we're losing um, a lot of uh, traditional beliefs. So that seems to me to be the case. So in formal terms, we're less religious. But I think, as I said, you can take away a man's gods, but only to give him others in return. You know, the people who worship Man City or Brexit or um, the Labour Party are everywhere. So clearly we... We have beliefs that fill our belief shape whole. Um, I think, I, I wish, I, I, I write books sometimes, and I would like to write a book about Christianity for atheists. I know there's been several, but I think we need shape to our lives. We need shape through our lives in terms of birth, marriage, and death. We need shape through our year in terms of... Um, you know, midwinter and midsummer and all the rest of it. We need festivals. We need shared experiences. We need space in our week to um, have silence and reflect. So I remember once um, somebody giving me the image that a human's life is is like a house. We have these different rooms. We have an emotional room, an intellectual room, um, perhaps a physical room or garden where we, we exercise. And among these rooms, we have a religious room. And it's not that we have to be in all of the rooms all the time. I think we have to go in every room sometime. And if we pretend that there is no religious room in the human life, then we may be taken by surprise. I would rather be more uh, uh, not obvious, but more knowing about it and say it's there. So how are we going to fill that? What are we going to do in that room? And because we're going to do something in it and we need to be aware of what it is we might do in it because if not, it'll be filled with what I would think of as the uglier sorts of belief, which I don't want any part of. We're just going to take a short break to catch up with the Theos team. One of the questions I get asked the most by people outside the London world of ideas or the Westminster bubble is what? is a think tank. What do you do? There's often gags made about sitting in a tank and thinking, which is obviously hilarious. But the 
concept of thinking and how we reflect, how we form our ideas, how we change our minds, how we engage with the world is something really central to our work and that we think and talk about a lot as a team. And I'm here with our researcher, Nathan Mladen, who has been reading a book to help us think about thinking. Nathan, tell me about it. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, So I've read a book uh, called How to Think. That title always kind of uh, gets on my nerves a bit because it sounds a bit patronizing, but I guess when you read it and it's quite short and pithy and oh so timely, um, you discover that it's actually not patronizing at all. It's actually very much needed in our context. So it's called How to Think, but it really gets interesting with the subtitle uh, because in the UK, the subtitle is A Guide for the Perplexed, whereas the subtitle for the US version is A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. And I mean, who wouldn't agree that Britain is a perplexing context in which to do some proper, serious uh, thinking? And who wouldn't agree that the US is not a world at odds? Now, it indicates to me that there's an American title. Perhaps this guy is not speaking from a UK perspective. Who is he? No. So he is Alan Jacobs and he's professor of humanities at Baylor University in the States, in in Texas. So he's written uh, various books, kind of in the English lit primarily, but all sorts of critical essays. I think he's one of the most fair-minded and and sober and creative uh, voices in the kind of the the Christian cultural uh, space in the States. And I think he's someone worth listening to. So what from his arguments have really stayed with you? What have you been trying to embody in your own thinking? One of the things that really stood out for me uh, is the way he drew attention to the importance of thinking about our bodies when thinking about thinking, Uh, sort of ironically, being mindful of our bodies. And he says in the absolutely stunning um, thinking person's checklist uh, at the end of the book, uh, this is one of the tips that he gives. When you're tempted to respond to a provocative, um, inflammatory, vexing statement, just listen to your body. Um, be attuned to your body. Are you twitching? Are you tense? Are you um, sweating? Obviously, this works primarily in a social media context, but I think it applies in kind of day-to-day conversations. Be more attuned to your body and listen to what's going on because your body will give you signals that you're probably overly defensive, that you're probably just um, getting ready to to attack and not really listen with charity, with generosity, with patience. And I'm already kind of throwing out the kind of intellectual virtues that he is kind of putting forward as the kinds of things we should be embodying. That's really helpful. It's one of the things that um, I think about a lot is that our fight or flight mechanism is the fact that often when we come across not even proper threat, but just disagreement, someone who says something we don't agree with. Because of these things we've discussed, our kind of tribal hardwiring, often we find ourselves flooded with stress hormone. And I have reflected on this much more myself since trying to parent a toddler, because what you're trying to do with a toddler is give them strategies for emotional regulation, give them strategies for getting themselves out of the meltdown in the supermarket where they're kicking off. But I think as adults, we have internal meltdowns in the supermarkets where we're screaming and kicking our arms and legs, which is the absolute worst time to be trying to think rationally, to engage with people who disagree with us. So that take a take a breath. I think one of the things he said that I read in your reviews is get outside, go for a walk, you know, walk it off. <laughs> Do not respond until you have um, calmed down. And I love seeing that very uh, thoughtful, intellectual way of engaging with what is really quite an ancient Christian doctrine about the kind of embodied of knowledge, something about the incarnation and our and creation teaches us about being more at home in our bodies, but saying practically, what does that mean for how we engage in the world? Um, I'm going to go get a copy. You've reminded me that it, is, it needs bumping up my reading list. Nathan, thank you so much for talking to me. Now back to our conversation with Professor Tom Shakespeare. 
come on to the area of public debate that you're perhaps best known for and we encountered each other because Sally Phillips came on the podcast um, previously and was wonderful talking about prenatal testing and, and Down syndrome and the way she's been involved in those debates. Um, the broader disability world which you've contributed to as an ethicist and a, and a, and a sociologist um, is is very much part of those public conversations, but I think in a different way than some of the other conversations that we have across difference, perhaps about race and gender. So I'd love to hear where you think we are with it in terms of public perceptions and how uh, disabled people feel about their public representation. And then perhaps let's unpack how we might do it better. I think the, the reality of disability in Britain today is austerity. So it has to start with the fact that uh, over the last few governments, there have been cutbacks in public spending. There have been huge cutbacks to local authority spending. There have been restrictions on personal independence payments, on employment uh, uh, support allowance, and on everything. Things have been restricted, uh, cut back, and in some cases abolished, like the Independent Living Fund. So that's the material reality. Life for disabled people is, for many disabled people, is much worse. Um, so disabled people are upset and angry about that. And some of the ways in which those policies have been justified has been referring to disabled people as scroungers. If you look at the, um, the the rhetoric in the red top newspapers, it used to be heroic, plucky, cripple, and now it's probably not even disabled, claiming benefits they're not entitled to, scroungers, you know, we pay for these people. I was told by somebody that uh, he was getting into his mobility vehicle from his wheelchair, and a woman went past with her child in a pushchair and turned to him and said, my taxes paid for that, in a sort of stigmatizing way and he was utterly shocked by this negative reaction and didn't retort or maybe you know spluttered and then afterwards he thought he should have pointed the child and said my taxes paid for that child because child benefit disability benefit are what we in a liberal welfare state contribute and we are a rich society. We're fifth or sixth richest in the world, and we can afford to support people. We should not have fraud, but the fraud levels are so tiny in disability benefits that this is not a huge problem. It's not even a significant problem. Um, so we need to love and support each other, whoever we are, whatever religion or none we have, because any one of us could become disabled, because um, over our lifetimes, we have periods of dependency and periods of contribution. And the merit or the worth of somebody doesn't consist in the money they have or the contribution they make. And I think we should. So I think disability is actually quite central to a larger conversation about the sort of society we are and what we owe to each other um, and the falseness of this idea of independence being a sort of selfish individualism. So, um, so that's the sort of political situation. I think... In other ways, disabled people are more visible, um, more public, um, in many ways more respected, but not all. We contribute in all sorts of ways. We reach out. Um, so I'm really proud to be a small uh, a part, part of that. And of course, medical care, health care means we live longer. Uh, we can repair things that go wrong. We can save babies that are premature. We can do heart surgery for children with Downs. Do an awful lot of stuff, which wonderful doctors, nurses, social workers, support workers are doing day in, day out. So it's mixed. In some ways, it's the best of days. In other words, ways the worst. For those of us who aren't physically disabled, I think many, many, or not visibly or not in the same way, feel um, very aware of some of the sensitivities and wanting to honour people, um, but not always sure what language to use or how to make, you know, how to make 
even to, to think ahead in terms of accessibility and things. So other than the, the just out and out stereotyping and, and verging on abusive messaging we're getting in, in some places, are there things that uh, perhaps our listeners might uh, be able to be aware of to help them better engage across these differences to be more sensitive to the kind of needs and feelings of the disabled community? I think to remember that disabled people are people first. Uh, we're individuals. We are different from each other. We don't we're not, there's no stereotype, which uh, sums up us all. So treat people, yeah, treat me as Tom, not as, you know, restricted growth person or person in a wheelchair. Secondly, understand that society disables us. Um, in, uh, I think it's in Hebrews, it says, make a level path for my feet so that the lame be not disabled. And I would call that the social model of disability. That If we make things level, if we make things accessible, then even if you have an impairment, you'll still be able to participate. And so it's incumbent on us, whether we organise a meeting or... Uh, uh, run a school or whatever it might be to make sure that the full diversity of human beings can use it. Um, I think, thirdly, that um, like the other minority that you mentioned, and sometimes not minorities, there is a strong identity politics element to the visible and here and audible movement of disabled people. And I am often on Twitter and I see this all the time, you know, I demand this and my rights are that and all the rest of it. And I understand exactly where that comes from, whether you're gay or trans or disabled or uh, feminist or whatever it might be. But I think it's both valuable in empowering people, but problematic, because I think that at the end of the day, people want to be an individual or they want to be a member of the community. They don't want to be singled out as the different person, the woman, the disabled person, the gay person or whatever it might be. So I don't want a separate um, shouty disability group. I want to be included. Um, and I think fundamentally, that's what the vast majority of disabled people want. So, you know, I don't mind if you make a mistake. I'm not going to go, oh, you've offended me. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to quietly try to correct you. And it sometimes gets very tiresome because people make the same, different people make the same mistake over and over again. But suck it up. You know, we don't all understand everything. I don't understand everything about lots of minorities. But please, you know, realize I'm trying and don't bite my head off and we'll go forward together. I think that applies to any idea. Identity politics. I think identity politics is a problem as much as it's a solution. How did you first get involved in uh, disability rights activism or th thinking about the public role of disabled people? What triggered that? I was, um, I did sociology at university and, you know, you're learning about all sorts of different movements and minorities and all the rest of it. And as I did that, I became aware that uh, actually disability could be included here. You know, we could just add disability to this list of women and minority ethnic people and lesbian gay people, and it worked. I was involved uh, in the National Union, National Union of Students Disability Campaign, so I met other radical disabled people, and um, I thought, began to think this is really important. I went to conferences and all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, I'm a middle class, university educated man, so I had a, you know, confidence and a voice, which I started committing to this field and really have never stopped in the last 30 years. Um, and uh, but I also questioned it and, um, you know, thought heretical thoughts. And when I read these great canons of um, canonical texts of disability rights, things like Michael Oliver's book, uh, The Politics of Disablement, I didn't just accept them. I thought, oh, well, I agree with this, but not that. And how can we do better? And so I've been, you know, a revisionist uh, in the disability uh, studies area, challenging some of the, what I thought were um, uh, naive conceptions and trying to do justice to the diversity of disabled people's lives and experiences. One particular area where you have um, perhaps 
diverged from the at least the main disability group's position, which is something we've been doing a bit of work around, which uh, on assisted dying. Talk to me a bit about that and how you came to uh, the position you have and perhaps spell out what you feel about that issue. I think disabled people's groups and some disability activists have been at the forefront of um, campaigns against dis- assisted dying, things like Not Dead Yet in America and Britain. Um, and it's very important to hear those voices, absolutely. But I come from a place which has celebrated the uh, choices and rights of disabled people. It's said that disabled people know best for them- themselves. It's said that we should support people to make their own choices. And that doesn't sit easily with saying, but not this choice. You can have any choice you want, but not this one. So I, I became worried about that. It didn't seem consistent to me. I also understand why there is a fear that hostility of society will drive people to uh, end their lives. But I also think that there are different cases. And at the end of life with people with end-stage cancer or motor neuron disease, where life is, where death is inevitable... Assisted dying gives people some control over the manner and timing of their death. And for some people, that's very important. Not for all. And even knowing that you could end your life when you want liberates people to die in better ways. And I didn't think that that uh, extending that right to terminally ill people would threaten people living happily with disability. Um, it's for me, it's central that you listen and you try and fulfill the choices of disabled people, not that you would ever impose that on somebody. It's the case that many disability rights activists fear that the lack of independent living will drive people to suicide or that pressure from families will drive people to suicide or poverty will drive people to suicide. But I think if we restrict it to people who are in end stage, whatever it might be, cancer or motor neuron disease, you know, independent living isn't so relevant in that case because you're going to die in two weeks or two months and you know i feel it's cruel we keep people alive far more often than we help them to die people already have the right to refuse treatment i could refuse hydration or nutrition and i've known people who've done that so why are we so anxious about this end of life situation i mean i i'm again i'm agnostic i'm open to correction but i that's where i get to with my thinking and the evidence that i've seen and in fact if you look at what disabled people actually think they're divided they're like everybody else some polls find a majority actually in favor of liberalization of assisted dying legislation and there's been at least one poll which finds disabled people against I'm not sure we know definitively, except that we know that they're divided like everybody else. Yes, our usual polling methods uh, get less useful, don't they, when you've got um, a a more difficult sample like... And also people are frightened of disability. So I think our job is to stop them being so frightened of disability and say, look, you can lead a perfectly good life if you can't speak uh, except through a you know machine. You can lead a perfectly good life if you're in a wheelchair, if you pee through a tube or whatever. None of these are important to what life means. And so if people were less frightened, maybe, you know, they're frightened of dependency. Well, you know, again, I think get over it. You know, it's okay. Now, you know, some people have had enough of dependency and, you know, they, they know they're going to die imminently. And I think it's probably cruel to say, but you can't have this choice. 
you, I believe, have experienced some backlash or some criticism for taking that position publicly. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, disabled people have different views. Um, I don't think I've not not nastiness, but I mean, you know, my dear friend uh, Jane Campbell, Baroness Campbell of Surbiton, to give her proper title, um, she and I love each other dearly, but disagree profoundly about this question. But I think we have enough respect for each other to understand that we're sincere, that we're open to debate, and to continue, you know, in her case, having tea with me in the House of Lords tea room from time time um so you know i think that um you know we need to have space in the disability community to disagree and still care for each other and respect each other as you know we know that there are many debates and you know we don't need to go into them broader than disability where people are fighting and closing each other down and police have been called you know surely we can talk through these things. If we can't, and we're fundamentally friends, whether you're feminists or disability rights activists or whatever, we're fundamentally on the same side. Please, can we uh, have more light, less heat? What would help with that? I think that, um, you know, we could say sort of perhaps banal things about respect and humility and all the rest of it. Um, I think uh, time and space, good facilitation, um, uh, listening um, you know, being careful with our language, nonviolent communication. I'm now I'm standing like a Quaker, aren't I? That's all right. Uh, Unpack nonviolent communication because oh not everyone will have come across it. Nonviolent communication is really about owning your thoughts. It's about not making generalizations. It's about listening very carefully to what other people are saying and not misrepresenting them. It's about framing your thoughts in ways that are not personally critical or undermining of the individual. Um, and, you know, it's proven, and, you know, this is what helps in Northern Ireland or, 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 or Israel, Palestine or whatever. Yeah, at the best of times, it helps us in quiet rooms get beyond the public face of conflict towards understanding what we have in common and towards listening. I only know a little of the kind of formal writing on nonviolent communication, but I know there's a body of work on it. Is there a good place for people to start if they're interested in finding out more? Um, there's... A very good book and I can't remember the author and I can see it on my shelf and if you google non-violent communication there's a handbook which really takes you through it and of course it's useful in families you know uh, uh, you know husbands and wives or, or partners uh, have conversations with children and adults and you know many of the times we're just trying to be heard and to say I hear what you are saying um, or I understand you are saying this and so you repeat back to somebody what you've heard that they're saying um, that's really helpful to people it's validating I have been heard and and they're not saying you're wrong or right but say and this is what I feel and to try and find the common ground I mean I'm not you know I'm not a mediator I can't give you chapter and verse but you know it's worth investigating nonviolent communication my final question is something I ask everyone, um, whether they're from a religious perspective or not, which is how might uh, religious people in public help improve the public conversations rather than it sometimes feel uh, sometimes feels like they're making them worse? I'm not sure. I think that I, well, I can speak personally. Um, I derive, I love thought for the day, almost always. Um, and I read Richard Rohr every day, uh, and you could be reading some other, you know, but I'm a liberal, you know, agnostic-y, religious-y sort of person, and I know other people are enraged by those things. So um, 
I think that, I mean, I I think some of the bishops of the Church of England have been fantastic. I remember doing a talk on the radio about why we should be religious but not spiritual Um, and basically saying as an atheist, you know, I like religion, but I just don't want to have to believe, you know, the woo-woo stuff. And I got an email from a bishop of the Church of England saying, fantastic, I completely agree. (laughs) Um, And uh, obviously I was touched by that. But um, I think that religious people have, you know, you know, whether it's Lord Sachs or Indigit Singh, you know, they've got wisdom. You know, I love talking to, uh, to, to religious leaders um, because they know stuff. I don't always agree. I certainly don't agree with some of their fundamental tenets, but I do know they're wise. And I think, you know, sometimes the whatever you'd call it, the new atheism um, sweeps the baby out with the bathwater. And, you know, I, I know who I'd rather listen to compared, you know, Jonathan Sachs or Rita Dawkins. so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kazvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd love to hear what you think. Please do get in touch via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or sacredpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you loved, what you hated, and who you think we should talk to next. We'd also be really grateful if you'd rate and review us wherever you get your podcast and spread the word to your friends. Thanks very much.